Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 145 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is British author Kazuo Ishiguro. He won the Booker Prize for his 1989 novel, The Remains of the Day which was turned into a feature film starring Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. In 2005, Ishiguro published a dystopian science fiction novel called Never Let Me Go, which was adapted into a feature film starring Kira Knightley and Andrew Garfield, with a screenplay by Alex Garland. Ishiguro's new book is a fantasy novel called The Buried Giant. And now, here's our interview with Kazuo Ishiguro. All right, so we're here with Kazuo Ishiguro. Welcome to the show. Well, it's very nice to be here. Thank you very much. Okay, and so your new book is called The Buried Giant. So how did the idea for this book first come about? Well, I have to go a long, long way back uh, for that. Um, Because I can remember telling an audience back in 2001 about a book I was working on, which is very like this one. Uh, But I didn't really, I couldn't really figure out the setting, even the genre, until much, much later. But I knew for a long time I wanted to write a, a story um, about a society that was suffering from a kind of collective amnesia. Um, not, not dementia or anything like that, or Alzheimer's. Some kind of very selective amnesia, so that whenever anyone tried to remember things around a certain area, a certain kind of topic, everyone would kind of blank out. Um, so that, uh, I was playing around with possible settings, you know, possible locations, uh, to play out this idea for a number of years. You know, um, I suppose what, what lay behind that was that I wanted to ask this question, how does a society, how does a nation decide when it's better to remember certain things from its recent past? And when is it better for that nation maybe to keep certain memories buried for the sake of keeping the society stable, for, for the sake of avoiding another cycle of violence or disintegration of that society altogether. But yeah, I mean, for a long time, I just couldn't get the story that would actually take me into that situation. All right. And so you did eventually settle on the sort of dark ages in Britain, right? Um, Why don't you tell us a bit about what sort of, did you do sort of historical research? Uh, Just talk about coming up with that, developing that as a setting. Well, I toyed actually, before I actually chose that setting, I toyed with the idea of using a more, what you might call, sci-fi setting, as I had done in my previous novel, Never Let Me Go. Um, you know, I, I suppose you know, all of us, we, you know, it's not difficult to think of some situation if you come up with a kind of a, a high-tech, high-concept um, idea of why a mass of people in the community might be having their memories controlled. I mean, it's, it's kind of easier to think of a solution to that problem, um, a writer's problem if you come up with some sort of a high-tech reason. Um, so I, w- I was playing around with that for a while, but um, there was something about that environment that I, it just didn't feel right for this particular story. And it occurred to me I could actually go right back into some kind of fable-like universe instead, where instead of some kind of sci-fi-ish or uh, high-tech reason for the amnesia. I could fall back on these ancient tropes. And so, um, yeah, of kind of magic or, um, 
or a spell of some sort. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be good to go right back into some kind of ancient Britain where um, a mist has descended on the land and the people there suffer from these memory lapses because of this mist. And that, that visually and aesthetically appealed to me much, much more. You know, I wanted these kind of bleak moors, uh, these huddled little villages. Um, I could see the protagonists you know, kind of plodding on across this very unfriendly landscape that maybe contained um, supernatural forces as well as kind of more conventional hostile dangers. And the actual trigger point for that, the thing that really opened up something in my imagination about that particular landscape where I could set the story, I was reading uh, an old English poem called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's a poem I've read a number of times over the years in different translations. I don't know if you've ever come across it. It's a a kind of a fun poem. Um, It's a story poem. And, you know, you don't need to know the story, but um, it basically takes place in two big castles. But there's a tiny little bridge passage um, when the hero, the young Sir Gawain, rides from one castle to the other across an ancient Britain. And it's only a stanza or so, but there's a little description of what a terrible place Britain was back in those days. And, you know, the, the poet says, um, and it's, an, it's an anonymous poet, the poet says, you know, there were no inns or anything like this for him to stay at. He had to cling on to rocks um, to sleep um, in the driving rain, which kind of puzzled me. I don't know why he has to sleep on rocks rather mm-hmm. than under a tree. But anyway, that's what it says. And, and then the, the bit that really caught my imagination it says that, and, and often he'll be chased out of villages by wolves or wild boar or by panting ogres. And the panting ogres are never mentioned again. You know, it's just, it's, they're just like part of the landscape, just like, um, like unfriendly bulls or something like this. And then he reaches the, the castle and the story continues. But it was that little, you know, literally you know, a few lines that described some imaginary ancient Britain that really caught my imagination. And I thought, well, I would like to put my story down there. Right. And you asked if I, if I know the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And I don't know if I've ever actually read the, the poem, but as a child, I had a picture book of that story. It was done in the style of an illuminated manuscript. And I just read that over and over and over again. So I, I know the story at least very well, and I, I love it. Yeah, it's it's a great fun story, but most of it has nothing to do with my novel. But um, And you've probably forgotten this little, maybe this little, description of the land he crosses wasn't even there, you know, um, in your picture book or illuminated book. Um, yeah, the story's great, but um, what I took out of it was that, that little glimpse of the land he crosses. I've actually heard you say, though, that in general, you're not particularly fond of Arthurian stories. So I was kind of curious, what, what is it about the Arthurian stories in general that, that you're not such a big fan of? I may become a big fan of them, but I, I haven't really read much about it. I mean, I'm not particularly drawn to the story about the uh, round table or the, the hunt for the Holy Grail or the, the love story between uh, Guinevere and Lancelot. I mean, you know, I, I've come across these things like everybody else has. It hasn't had a special allure for me. Um, the Arthur I was interested in was a quasi-historical figure. I read a lot of stuff about um, a real historical figure upon which possibly the Arthur legend was based. And so I, I became fascinated by this period in British history that is a complete blank. You know, it's, there's a period that 
about which no historian seems to be able to make a confident statement. And that's the period between 410 AD, when the Romans leave Britain, because their empire is crumbling. And they leave behind a kind of a disintegrating society, because you know, the whole civil structure disappears when the, um, the reigning Romans go. Uh, so from that point, when the Romans leave, to the time when the Anglo-Saxons basically conquer the land and start to turn Britain into what then becomes England, that's around 490 AD. So there's something like an 80-year period about which very little is known because all records disappeared you know, in the post-Roman era. But it's thought it was a time of kind of skirmishes and civil war. Now, a lot of people think King Arthur may well have been... Um, based on a real military leader who led a lot of the British resistance to the invading Anglo-Saxons. And at some point, it's thought, this is all conjecture, I guess, but it's thought that this military leader won some kind of huge victory, which at least maintained some kind of uneasy peace between the, the, these two tribes for a generation or two. So that was a situation that I wanted. Um, that's what I was looking for. Uh, and so I thought, uh, okay, I'll call this guy Arthur, um, uh, because you know, I could then make use of a lot of the, the literary reverberations that come off that. But that, it's that Arthur I was interested in. Now, this Arthur is long dead by the time my story starts, but the, the enforced peace that he instituted um, is just about holding still between two factions that have learned to coexist. They, they're kind of friendly, they're intermingling, but their coexistence depends on them not remembering what happened a generation back because you know, some awful atrocities were committed in order to win this peace. Um, I, I'd say in addition to all of that, though, because I'm, I'm, we've just been talking about remembering and forgetting um, at the societal level here. Um, the book is is at the, at the forefront of the book, um, there's a kind of love story. Um, and it is about the same question, when is it better to remember, when is it better to forget, as applied to a marriage. You know, very much the same issues exist for a couple, like the couple at the center of my book. They've been married for a long time. Um, they've lost a lot of their precious shared memories. They, they're now worried that their love might not survive the um, loss of these memories. You know, if they've lost all these memories of the years that they spent together, the happy memories, and, uh, maybe there's nothing to sustain their love. And th this is their concern at the beginning. And so they, they set off to try and find their lost memories. But as they go on, the, the, the fear comes into their lives that, well, the bad memories will come back with the good ones. And will their love survive the resurrection of those bad memories? On the other hand, if if they keep these bad memories just buried, does that mean their love is based on something false, a false premise? It's just an illusion. Right. And you mentioned that this, this couple, they're traveling across this landscape inhabited by ogres and dragons and monsters like that. I'm just curious, were you drawing on any particular folkloric tradition or literary tradition for those kinds of monsters? I noticed that you had studied with Angela Carter, who's known for writing these kind of dark fairy tale stories. So I was just wondering what sort of, yeah, what sort of literary uh, influences did you have for, for the monsters in the story? 
I did indeed study. She was my tutor and mentor. She was much more than just my uh, tutor at university. When I was uh, uh, doing a writing program you know, many years ago, she she then went on to be a kind of a mentor figure. Uh, and uh, we continued to be friends right up until her you know, early death at the age of 51. Um, and so I don't know if she had a, her writing had a direct effect on something like The Buried Giant, but generally she was an example of an author who who didn't think in categories. She didn't think you know, some things were not suitable for literary fiction and other things were. Uh, you know, she was a pretty out-of-the-box kind of writer. And to some extent, I think her career suffered while she was alive. I mean, she, she was quite a neglected writer during the time when she was alive. And she, uh, it's only later on um, that people have come to recognize what an important writer she was. But I think um, that's when I first started to write. It was right at the beginning of my writing life. And I think um, maybe, you know, because of people like Angela, I, I've never really thought in terms of kind of categories or genre even. I mean, are there other stories, though, about ogres and pixies and dragons that are favorites of yours that you've read? I would go back to... I, I am very fond of uh, The Odyssey and The Iliad, actually. Um, those two Homer works I, I read regularly in different translations as they come out. I mean, I just read the two most recent... You know, the, 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 the recent translations of both of those books by Stephen Mitchell. That's the latest... Um, I enjoy reading Greek stuff, old Greek stuff in general, Euripides, Aeschylus, um, where kind of the acts of gods um, are there in a very intimate way, and in an almost banal way. I mean, people are never surprised at the intervention of particular gods when they do kind of remarkable things, even on the battlefield, as in the Iliad. You know, they, they just shrug and say, huh, you know, I would have got that guy for... Athena hadn't intervened and <laughs> whipped him away, you know. So I, I kind of like that kind of coexistence of the uh, of gods and the, the supernatural alongside the banal and the everyday. Um, I was also brought up on a lot of samurai stories um, as a child. Uh, not just samurai folk tales, but, I, you know, I read a lot of kind of manga-type stuff featuring samurai. And, and it may be true to say, maybe I'm generalizing, falsely here, but uh, in a lot of Japanese samurai tales, once again, fantastical elements like that seem to exist very easily and naturally. You know, there's no big deal about it. A samurai, you know, wanders into a town and the town folks say that we've got a demon problem on that bridge over there. Um, this demon keeps kind of appearing and frightening people. Could you do something about it? You know, you're a samurai, you're good with a sword, you know, please do something about it. And he says, um, well, all right, give me a nice meal for free and I'll see what I can do. I mean, that, that kind of thing is very, very typical in Japanese kind of, not just folk tales, but Japanese you know, stories featuring samurai. You know, they're, they're set in relatively modern terms, you know, like 19th or 18th century. And in, in that landscape, it always seems to me the coexistence of things like uh, oni, as, as they'll be called in Japanese folklore, which is kind, kind of a demon come ogre, I guess. And, and and um, foxes that that are shape changes, you know, and things like that are very, very common. And it and it seems to tap back into something ancient and profound. Um, so that that all comes fairly natural to me. Um, I 
I was slightly surprised, to be honest, when I published this book, and and a lot of debate seemed to surround surround it around the question of whether it was fantasy in the modern genre sense or not. Um, you know, I thought, well, okay, we can discuss that if we want, but um, um, yeah, I, I I didn't think it was much of a big deal one way or the other. You know, I I needed these elements. Right. I mean, one thing that you said in an interview that really struck me is that you said that there is that, you know, this this book features dragons and it also features characters who believe in God and that there is equally as much evidence for God as there is for dragons. But somehow people regard dragons in a book as silly, whereas they wouldn't regard the idea of God in a book as silly, that they understand that the idea of God, even if it's fictional, is incredibly powerful to people. But people have seem to have a problem with the idea that dragons might have the same sort of emotional power. Yeah, you put it very well there. I mean, that that's it does seem to me odd. Well, I, I suppose it's not odd. I, I guess people feel in the modern world that we've superseded the um, kind of beliefs in dragons and demons, uh, creatures like that as an expression of our fears and hopes and aspirations and longings. But God hasn't really kind of passed out of our imaginative thinking. Um, in a way, you know, science and exploration, just knowledge of the world, seems to have removed those um, other creatures. But God seems to be beyond the reach of uh, science and all these things. And so God isn't childish. God, you know, God isn't fantasy. Because God is, is still recognized as a a legitimate expression of people's profound beliefs about how the world works. Um, and on, on the question of God, I mean, in, in, in my book, there, there is a dispute about God as well, because the the pagans, I mean, the, the Anglo-Saxons that are landing in ever greater numbers in Britain are pagan. They're, they haven't had Christianity yet. Whereas the native Britons have been converted to Christianity by the Romans, who used to be there their bosses. And so uh, there's a tension there. And um, one of the accusations that the Anglo-Saxon warrior aims at the the native Britons, the Christians, is to say, yeah, isn't it convenient you have created for yourself a God who is infinitely merciful? You know, all you have, all you have to do with your God, never mind what kind of atrocities your armies commit, you know, all you have to do is kind of pray sincerely and maybe atone and commit a few kind of pious acts of self-inflicted pain. And you, you believe that your God will forgive you because you created a God of infinite mercy. But from our viewpoint, he's saying, you know, this, this is just a way of condoning you know, hideous, vicious um, behavior. You know, we may be pagan, uh, but you know, our gods, you break the rules, you're punished. And um, so there is a kind of, if you like, an argument or a discussion about that aspect of of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I mean, is there something about the idea of a very merciful God, or an infinitely merciful God, who will forgive even the most hideous things as long as you repent? I mean, ha- has that idea made it easier for some Christian societies to rampage? around the world throughout history, creating empires, invading other people's territories and 
kidnapping people for slaves and so on. You know, the, the, it's the European, it's the Christian nations that did rampage around the globe, creating these empires you know, all over the world. Um, and it's an interesting thought uh, as to whether that would have been quite so easy had they not had this God who would forgive them anything. Right. I mean, there's a really fascinating Arthurian fantasy novel called The Mist of Avalon. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, it takes this idea that's unfortunately been discredited that the, the British Isles used to have sort of a cult of goddess worship before the Christians came. But that is the case in this novel. And so Arthur kind of has to choose between this goddess worship of the pagans and this um, very sexist monotheistic Christianity that uh, comes into the, to the British Isles. And that's, that conflict is very much at the forefront of that novel. That sounds very interesting. You must give me the title of that novel then, uh, before we finish this interview. Okay, yeah, well, so it's, it's, it's called The Mist of Avalon by Marion Zimmer Bradley. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll check that out. Okay, great. Um, well, you mentioned that there's been sort of this uh, controversial reception to this novel of yours vis-a-vis -vis genre, and one uh, example of that that got a lot of attention within the fantasy community was uh, from Ursula K. Le Guin. Do you want to just talk about, from your point of view, um, how that uh, went down? Well, first off, I have to say, Ursula K. Le Guin um, fairly quickly and graciously withdrew the, her earlier remark on her blog and said that she had perhaps been too hasty in accusing me um, of uh, snobby about the fantasy genre. Um, that, that accusation was based on... Uh, something that was quoted in the New York Times um, interview. And uh, I, I think you, know, you probably know more about this than I do, but you know, a lot of people within the SFF community did debate about this. And, uh, um, but, you know, if there's any, but you know, because, I mean, she, she kind of withdrew the, the accusation against me personally, but I think um, her larger point was that there was a very strong tendency on the part of mainstream literary authors to be kind of snobbish or um, condescending about the fantasy genre, uh, even when uh, they used fantasy elements themselves or, or uh, entered that kind of arena of, of that genre. Um, this was her general complaint. Now, I'm not in the position to um, uh, say whether you know, that accusation in general uh, is justified or not, because I, I haven't been following you. Know, what's been happening over the years, but uh, um, I made it very clear um, shortly after I, I was aware of Ursula K. Le Guin's initial accusation, I made it very clear that, look, you know, I have never intended to sneer or be disrespectful to the fantasy genre. I mean, here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing heavily from it. You know, why would I be someone who's sneering at it? Um, but if there are lines being drawn, and I think there are. I think there's, I've stepped into a much wider discussion that's much bigger than um, my book. It, it's a, I think there's a wider discussion going on, not just within the SFF community, but in a wider book world about the shifting parameters of what constitutes uh, literary or mainstream fiction. Now, I think things have been changing rapidly in the last 10, 15 years. And so writers like David Mitchell or Neil Gaiman um, 
yeah, uh, some some filmmakers as well, like Alex Garland and people like this, and Christopher Nolan and so on. I, I think that the the parameters of what is serious or you know what is profound uh, literature and w- what is kind of um, popular genre fiction, those boundaries I think have been crumbling very fast. And I think this is one of the kind of really exciting things that, that's happening at the moment. And to some extent, it's enabled older writers like myself, who perhaps grew up in a crustier, more prejudiced kind of atmosphere about what we could and couldn't do if we considered ourselves to be literary authors. I think people like me, oh, I, you know, I have been liberated by by a lot of the work that's being done by you know, writers who are a generation or perhaps two generations younger than me. Um, I personally felt very liberated when I first read David Mitchell's work about 15 years ago, when I read his first novel, Ghostwritten. I, ju- I thought, you know, not only was that a staggering kind of display of talent, of, of you know, incredibly broad talent to be able to do so many different kinds of genres, you know, all in one book. Um, I was really struck by his kind of fearlessness, if you like, about how he might be categorized or you know, where he'll be positioned. Um, he just seemed to revel um, in the in any kind of kind of energetic storytelling tools that that he could use. Um, and later on, that that same characteristic was was even more noticeable and admirable, I think, in Cloud Atlas. Um, and so writers like that, I felt kind of liberated me to write a book, say, like Never Let Me Go. Um, Never Let Me Go was a book I had attempted to write twice before in the 90s, but couldn't really find, I couldn't find the final piece of the jigsaw. Uh, when I tried it the third time, in around 2001, um, I was able to do it because I was able to use what you might loosely call the speculative fiction uh, layer, you know, surface to the story. Uh, and I think this is still going on. I think the parameters are shifting. And I think there are some people, there is a kind of a, a rear guard action as well. There's a kind of a conservative, in, 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 with a small c, kind of rear guard action in the book world. And people who, who say, look, we don't want all these you know, we don't want ogres and dragons and things within the walls of highbrow literary fiction. There's enough of that in video games and you know Hollywood blockbuster franchises. You know, we're awash with this stuff. Um, keep it out of um, our, our kind of classy writing. Um, I think there's a tension between that kind of school and people who say, "Look, I mean, we." These are all ways of expressing very powerful things. In fact, they're very powerful tools for expressing um, emotions that otherwise would would just remain kind of cycle babble kind of statements in in realist fiction. But you know, you can actually dramatize them in in with supernatural forces or whatever you know, demons or whatever you want to do. Uh, these are tools that have been used ever since people sat around the campfire you know, as cavemen. Um, uh, the ancient Greeks used it, the Romans used it, you know, uh, Scandinavian folktales, Japanese folktales. I mean, 
European folk tales. We, we've we've used them all along, and why why have we suddenly got rather snobbish and sneery about it just in the last few years? Yeah, um, uh, so the, I think there is a big debate going on now, and I think the the tide is is with the liberals. Yeah, and and if I have to, if you're asking me where do I stand on this, I have to be very clear about it. I'm on the side of the ogres and the pixies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, I I needed them when I when I want, was struggling to find a way to express my story. So I know at first hand that you know any writer who wants to express himself needs to be free to use these things without people raising an eyebrow and saying, I don't like books with pixies and ogres in them. You know, people are perfectly entitled to read my book and say they don't like it. That That's fine. But if they're saying, I'm not going to read your book despite having liked your previous books because I hear there's ogres in it, well, that just seems to me classic prejudice. You know, it's like saying, I'm not going to come to your restaurant because you have certain kinds of people on your staff. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a conclusion that's drawn simply by inference and association. I just have to say, I totally agree with you about your, your point about prejudice, because I've had this experience throughout my life as a, a fantasy fan and fantasy author, is that I'll tell people that I write fantasy, and they'll say, oh, I don't read that stuff. And I'll say, oh, well, well, why not? And they say, oh, I just don't like it. And I'll say, well, which books, which fantasy novels have you read? And they'll admit that they've literally never read any. And it, it, it just seems like, you know, that, that don't judge a book by its cover is something that we tell eight-year-olds. And the mm. book critics should have figured that out by the time they're 50 years old, you know. I, I, I agree. Um, I think I've, I, long before this um, you know, fantasy kind of thing came into my life, this debate came into my life, you know, around the time of publication of this book, I have always been uneasily aware of the fact that there is a kind of a, a social status dimension to literature. But it has nothing to do with art or reading, proper reading, or, or literature itself. Um, in most societies I've come across, um, certainly you know, highbrow reading and reading in general helps people to kind of define themselves as being, you know, belonging to the better classes. It can be a kind of a badge that some people like to wear simply to denote themselves as as being maybe you know classier than other people and so i think there is a spurious motivation uh, behind some kinds of reading or some kinds of expressed enthusiasm for for books i've always been aware of that side of literature I, i think it exists for theater and opera as well in quite a big way you know i mean um and I think some people who are not genuine book fans, or maybe maybe they're not. Well, I'll rephrase that. Maybe people who aren't confident readers. They are afraid of what people will think um, about them um, because of the book they happen to be holding in their hand. When we're teenagers, you know, we're very prone to this. You know, if you like that band, you're not cool. You know, if you wear those sneakers, you're you're cool. I mean. Which, but with reading, you know, we should grow out of that. You know, we should be reading for genuine reasons. You know, that, that reading is transformative. It it's, it takes you places emotionally, um, it gives you profound ideas. And 
uh, we shouldn't be worried about you know what the person across the aisle from you on the in, on the bus or the subway is thinking because they they can see the jacket of the book you're reading. But I think that dimension to reading certainly remains, and I think it's that's for some reason um, books with dragons in them. Um, I think it, it arouses some sort of fear on the part of a certain kind of insecure reader. But that, that's just my speculation. No, I, I completely agree with that. And I mean, you know, the show, it's called Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And we have a lot of, I don't know, there's just been a lot of discussion in recent years about what does it mean to be a geek. And, and one definition people often give is is love in the face of disapproval, that you love the, you love the things you love and you're not ashamed of it and you don't care what anyone else thinks. And that's very different from the sort of snobbish impulse where you determine your likes based on what you think is going to win you approval. Mm. Well, that's quite a good uh, definition. I mean, um, I hadn't been aware that that's how geek, you know, that's the definition of geek, but that seems to me a definition of, you know, a confident person, <laughs> a mature person to me. Um, well, you mentioned Neil Gaiman. I was kind of just curious if you had seen his review of your book in the New York Times and just kind of if you had any thoughts about it. I have a couple of quotes here that I, I might want to get your reaction to. Uh, yeah, I, I, of course I saw that review and I was delighted to see that review. Um, uh, almost at the same time that that review came out, uh, uh, another one came out by um, oh, in Prospect magazine, which is a British kind of intellectual magazine. Uh, which had a kind of it, it was an interesting pairing that um, those two reviews because Neil, the Neil Gaiman review, I, from what I recall, began with the words "fantasy is a tool for writers to dot dot dot," you know, and it was a very articulate discussion about the role of um, what you might loosely call you know fantasy techniques in expressing ideas in fiction. Um, the, this other review, uh, I, I've gone and forgotten, oh, a lady called Joanna Kavanagh, a, a novelist, a British novelist. Her review was looking at it from the other side. She was, it, her review began, well, I can't quote it exactly, but something to the effect that, you know, the social realist novel isn't quite dead, but it's now become a zombie. And, and her, her argument was that that kind of, uh, you know the the so-called literary social realist literary novel, you know, badly needs injection from things like fantasy, but, um, because um, it's just become moribund. And so the this is why I, I I kind of concluded that you know my book had just stepped into something much bigger than you know, <laughs> than discussions about my book. You know, there, there was some kind of ongoing discussion going on about um, the shifting parameters of what writers who thought of themselves as literary you know, should be thinking of as their business, you know, their, their legitimate business, and and readers who are keen to follow what they would like to consider to be the important fiction of that day, maybe also needed to kind of start shifting their parameters about what kind of things they should be looking for. Um, so I thought this was quite an interesting and exciting debate. But was there something in particular you wanted to ask about about Neil Gaiman's review? Well, yeah. So, for example, he says, uh, on a second reading and on a third, its characters and events and motives are, are easier to understand, but even so, it guards its secrets and its world close. 
I was just curious, to what extent do you intend this book to be mysterious and inscrutable? And to what extent is that just sort of who you are? Well, I'm, I never intended the book to be inscrutable. Um, almost any aspect of it, to me, is completely transparent. Uh, <laughs> but I guess, I guess from somebody else's point of view, there might be something mysterious about it. But, um, you know, I can, I can explain almost anything you want about it if you ask me. I mean, um, if, I don't know Neil Gaiman at all, but if, he, <laughs> if I met him and he asked me, you know, explain this because I was puzzled by it even after the third reading I'll be able to explain it to him um, to me it's a it's a fairly simple story you know there's a there's a, there's a mist falling, falling <laughs> over the land <laughs> that makes people amnesiac um, a couple want this mist to go away because they they want their precious memories back so at the personal level you know this mist is a bad thing at least it seems like that at the beginning but from the nation's point of view, getting rid of the source of that mist is probably going to restart a terrible you know, cycle of violence. Um, it's probably going to bring on a genocide. And the only thing that's been holding down this violence is, is this forgetfulness. And because the mist is caused by the dragon, although that's a bit of a spoiler, <laughs> um, the story revolves around, you know, do you want to kill this dragon or do you want to defend it? Uh, that's a pretty... In my way of thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairly straightforward <laughs> story. But, but I mean, maybe there's something about the way I've told it that puzzles people, or maybe they think, you know, that there are various layers. Well, this is true. You know, there, obviously, you know, within that story, there are various kinds of things I think about about the nature of memory, the nature of the bond between uh, a husband and wife, and and what the relationship is between that bond and their love and memory and their shared memories and you know, what are the things that can possibly tie um, different communities together uh, and bind them into something that they could call a nation and what are the things that will forever divide them I mean, of course all these things are there so I guess there are kind of other layers to the to the thing but essentially the story is pretty simple well, you mentioned one major aspect of the story is that there's this kind of test of love that the boatman gives these uh, this married couple, and they're afraid of what the answer might be. Do they actually is there is their love strong enough to pass this test? And it seems like that that really reminded me of of Never Let Me Go as well, where there's this also this idea of oh, if our love is strong enough, it will enable us to pass a test, uh, yeah. a, a sort of th threatening test. Um, and I think this is interesting because in a lot of fairy tales, there's there's love presented as if in this way, as if it's this um, this binary thing that if you, you know, it gets tested and it's either a zero or a one, and uh, consequences flow from that that measurable that sort of quantification of love. It's interesting you point out that maybe this happens in a lot of fairy tales. Um, I I hadn't really been thinking about that. Um, yeah, I first came across this this motif or whatever you like to call it and never let me go um, and I've repeated it here it, it it's there because there's a I recognize a kind of a emotion um, that people have that you know love is so hard to find and it's so hard to maintain that when you do when you do that even halfway successfully you kind of feel it's so special that surely um, people recognize the very special and unique nature of it. 
surely that would entitle you to some kind of concessions or um, you know, something, some special treatment from God or from fate or whatever it is you think controls you. But surely you and the person you love, by virtue of this love that you've built, surely you qualify to be an exception in some kind of way. I think that that feeling, maybe it's an error, but that feeling often accompanies love, I think. Um, but maybe it's, it's, a, it's a foolish thing to think love is um, that powerful. But that, it's not just in fairy tales where there's tests of love. I think that idea that maybe love is love can, it can trump death, or at least trump some of the worst aspects of death. Uh, that is there in every kind of storytelling. I think, you know, from screwball comedies to westerns to whatever, you know, I mean, I think you see that over and over again. These are kind of maybe silly beliefs that people have, but somewhere I think uh, many of us have, have this kind of hope, almost irrational hope, when we think about mortality and death. And we don't really like to think uh, we'll be separated. Um, you know, we, even unreasonably, you know, people who are quite advanced in age think they've got a lot, of, lot more years together you know, um, um, when they're enjoying their time together. They don't sit there saying, well, let's be rational about this. You know, the chances are <laughs> one or the other of us will die in the next five years. No one says that. You know. They live as though it's going to go on forever. And so um, so I, it, I'm, I'm just kind of trying to capture that aspect of human relationships in, in these kinds of tests, I suppose. I mean, I've kind of formalized it. But it's, it, it reflects, I think, in our more hopeful, romantic, and irrational moments, what, what a lot of us hope and, and think about love and death. Yeah. Okay, so unfortunately, we're, we're pretty much running short on time here. And you did ask me before we started if I could maybe recommend a book to you uh, at the end here. And there was one I really wanted to mention uh, that I thought of a lot while reading this book that I think you might really enjoy. Uh, it's, it's called The Night by Gene Wolfe. And okay, I think so the, the night, I assume night with a K. Yeah, yeah, the night, yeah. night with a K. Yeah, uh, by Gene uh, G E N E Wolf W O L F E. And uh, okay. he's a very, very highly regarded fantasy author. And this is a book about a boy who travels to a fantasy world and grows into a, a mighty warrior and then loses his memory. So he kind of reverts to the state of being a young boy in the body of this warrior, and he has to learn what actually happened to him in his life of adventure. And uh, and Gene Wolfe, he's, he's a very uh, a very he write, he has a lot of mysteries in his stories, and he's a very fine pro stylist. And he shares a lot of your preoccupations with identity and memory and things like that. And I, I think you would really enjoy that book. Okay, Gene Wolfe. Okay, and who? Which other writers would you recommend? If we're talking about contem the contemporary scene right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, among living authors, I mean, I would also really strongly recommend Tim Powers. Is one of my favorite fantasy authors. Uh, my favorite book of his is called The Anubis Gates. Okay, Tim Powers. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, graphic novels. Do you think they are? Is that an interesting field at the moment? I used to follow people like Alan Moore, but that that's going back some time now. I mean, I, I know he still produces stuff, but um, do you think graphic novels have much to do with the fantasy world, uh, the fantasy book world at the moment, or is that something completely separate? Oh no, absolutely. And we talk about graphic novels on this show. 
Uh, I'm more of an expert in prose fiction, but I, I love uh, graphic. My, my, my main issue with graphic novels is that they're just too expensive. I can't afford to read them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, there are some spectacular ones out there. Uh, there's one called Why the Last Man uh, that I really, really enjoyed. Why the Last Man? Yeah, so it's, it's the letter Y. Oh, I see it. That's what I mean. Okay, Why the Last Man? And, and who are the authors or author of that? Yeah, I'm I'm blanking on the name. It's uh, okay. Right. Brian Brian K. Vaughan is is the name. Brian K. Vaughan. Okay. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm very new to this area. Um, well, I'm I'm happy to answer any questions you have. I mean, you know, we're we're at the time limit that we agreed on, and I'm happy to stay here as long as you want. But uh, <laughs> okay, well, um, I've got another. I have an event to see. Uh, I have to drive to Menlo Park in you know a different part of San Francisco in a little while. But but uh, while I've got you there, I, I'll be quite interested to hear your. I mean, I, you know, obviously you're interviewing me, so I was telling you about you know my speculations about the fact that you know I think that there is a debate going on, certainly in the mainstream book world, about the parameters of you know what's of the shifting parameters of what constitutes kind of like legitimate highbrow fiction now. Uh, but what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, am I way off, do you think, on that? Or do you sense that there is something like that going on? And what and what are people saying within that kind of the, the science fiction fantasy community? Well, right. I mean, this, I mean, from my perspective, this is, th th there is definitely what I would perceive as progress, uh, particularly in recent years. But this is uh, something that's been going on for a long time and is a, a long standing source of resentment within among fantasy and science fiction authors, the way that um, there's just this implicit belief in the literary world that a work is either serious literature or fantasy and science fiction, but it can't be both at the same time. And so any work of fantasy and science fiction that is plainly great literature, like 1984, something like that, by some sort of magical transmutational property becomes serious literature and stops being fantasy and science fiction. And you'll, you'll very often have the situation Ursula Le Guin is uh, aggrieved about, where uh, a literary author will write a book that is plainly science fiction by any reasonable standard, and, uh, and will say, Oh, but this isn't really science fiction because it's it has serious artistic intent. Uh, the implication being that every other work of fantasy and science fiction lacks any serious artistic intent, and that this book is better than all of them, even though the person often has never read any any fantasy and science fiction and is in really no position whatsoever to judge the the relative merits of their work uh, versus the existing body of work. And so. I, I, I think, you know, people of my generation have much more uh, flexible attitudes or much more open-minded attitudes about this, I would say. Uh, but it still drives me crazy in, uh, like in, like in grad school, I took a class from a very well-known author who I, I like a lot. And he assigned us two books to read, which I would consider science fiction by any, any stretch of the imagination, Cormac McCarthy's The Road and Fiskadoro by Dennis Johnson. Um, but uh, I could just not half half the class could not be convinced that these were works of science fiction because they said that they dealt with serious themes or were were well written uh, <laughs> things like this. Uh, so it's very much a question of definition. Then you, you, these are, I mean, of course, I mean, this what you're talking about. The argument circles back on itself uh, because it's all about definition. If you define science fiction as a genre that isn't serious, then obviously 
you know, it becomes a circular argument. Then you can always say, you know, that's not, you know, science fiction cannot be serious. And that work, because it's serious, is not science fiction. I mean, that, that all depends on the definition that science fiction is, is, is a non-serious genre. Right, yeah, I think that's, yeah. exactly, that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, yeah, that's interesting. The, the last person who was interviewing me, he said at the beginning of the interview, he thought my book wasn't fantasy because fantasy tended to um, be, the preoccupations of contemporary fantasy tended to be adolescent issues. He, he didn't mean that in a pejorative sense. He, he meant literally they tend to work out a lot of the worries and concerns of adolescent people. Uh, whereas my book seemed to be preoccupied, you know, with quite the reverse, you know, preoccupations with aging people, you know, pe- people facing uh, aging and death. Um, but I, I wondered, that, that hadn't quite occurred to me before, but I mean, do you think there's anything in that, that, that fantasy, as a, as, just as a marketing genre, you know, I'm not talking about the genre any more deeply than that, it's, it's associated, it, it's actually about kind of um, young adult people working out their kind of growing up issues. Well, I, I mean, there certainly is a lot of fantasy that fits that definition. And I think that given the massive success of the YA publishing category in recent years, that's uh, even more firmly established this connection between young adult literature and fantasy in the minds of people who don't read any adult fantasy. But if you read books that are published as adult fantasy, uh, they they deal with an incredibly wide range of topics. I mean, to take an obvious example, Game of Thrones is perhaps mm. I think the best selling adult fantasy novel right now, and is not uh, particularly concerned with uh, coming of age. Although yeah. that is part of the story. What what is your opinion of Game of Thrones? Once again, I'm, I have to confess I've not read or seen an episode of the TV series, but uh, I, I may do now. I actually deliberately avoided it while I was writing this book. <laughs> I mean, it became famous you know, after, long after I started to write this book, and I just thought, um, I'm not going to watch it in case it messes up my my view of my book. But now that i finished the book, I, I may look at it. But do you consider Game of Thrones to be an important part of what's going on now? Or, or would you really prefer to recommend Tim Powers or people like that? Oh, I mean, I love Game of Thrones. It's one of my favorite books. I've read it five times. Uh... And when my friends and I get together, uh, approximately 50% of our conversation regards speculation about when the next book is going to come out and what it's going to contain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's just an incredible frenzy you, you've probably, you're probably aware of uh, among fans about what's going to happen with the next book. Yes. Why is yes. it coming so, out faster? Is the and TV I show that he'll, feel that he's going to die before he's going to finish the series. I've heard that as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty common... Mm-hmm. Although, albeit tasteless uh, uh, statement, but yeah. Um, uh, but but yeah, I mean, I would so I would certainly recommend Game of Thrones in addition to to authors like Tim Powers and Gene Wolfe. Uh, they're all all favorites. Uh, another one, oh, another one you really have to read is China Mieville. He's a, a oh, I, I know China Mieville. Okay, well. yeah. In fact, I, I I've met him a number of times. He's a very interesting guy, and I really I I found yeah, his book um, The City and the City. I thought it was a very that's the only book of his I've read, but I, I thought that was very interesting. I, do you know that book? I, I do, yeah, I've read it. That's that's yeah. It's more of a surreal novel, um, and his earlier work has more is more overtly fantastic. My favorite of his books is called The Scar, and it's just this crazy, gonzo, grotesque, uh, secondary 
a world fantasy that I, I think everyone should read. The Scar, S-C-A-R? Yes. Yeah, okay. All right. Mm -hmm. And what about Neil Gaiman? Does he fit in your landscape as a fantasy writer? Where does he sit? I mean, he's enormously kind of um, influential and talked of at the moment. But um, how is, is he part of the SFF community or what, what is he? He he certainly is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's a. I would say he's a fantasy author. I think that's how he would describe himself. Uh, I mean, he's been a fixture at science fiction conventions. Um, you know, since he was very young, uh, he was very strongly influenced by one of my favorite authors. This is an author uh, from the '60s and '70s named Roger Zelazny. Um, and uh, so, what what is that name again? <laughs> uh, that's a tricky one. So it's it's Z E L A Z N Y. Zelazny? Yes. And he's he's from the 60s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there was a movement in science fiction called the New Wave in the 1960s, and uh, Roger Zelazny, Ursula Le Guin, um, Tom Dish, and Samuel R. Delaney are, are generally thought of as being mm -hmm. the, the main uh, people in that movement. So Neil Gaiman would be considered to be... Is somebody very much at the heart of the fantasy thing, or is he considered to be someone who hovers on the periphery and crosses into kind of more mainstream stuff, or or what? I mean, how how is he regarded? I would say he's. I mean, he's very. I mean, he's like maybe the most beloved person uh, within the fantasy genre. He has a massive okay. following within mm -hmm. it, and I mean, he's achieved a lot of um, mainstream success, uh, but he's done so by writing the kind of things he was writing all along, which is... Um, so that doesn't cause resentment, the fact that he is so... Um, he's become so famous in the, in the mainstream. No, I think we just were all happy for him. You know? okay. mm. uh, it would only be if he... I mean, there are, occasionally you'll get someone who achieves mainstream success and then kind of tries to distance themselves from their roots, you know, like like uh, like teenagers who don't want to be seen with their parents, kind of. Mm -hmm. okay. And mm. uh, and that can cause resentment, but um, mm -hmm. but success on its own, I wouldn't say it does that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that that's very interesting. Um, all right, my my wife is coming now. She's going to signal to me. I'm just interviewing him now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm asking him for tips about what's going on. In, in, so, um, uh, yeah, we finished about 15 minutes. I, I I'm having my turn now. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, we're going to have to leave in just a minute, but just uh, another question. What about J.G. Ballard? How, how is he regarded as, with any seriousness amongst contemporary readers of SF fantasy now, or is he somebody way way back in the past? Uh, I mean, I've read him. I, I mean, he's, he's very well regarded within the field. I, I would say he's probably not particularly well known to younger um, science fiction and fantasy readers, but uh, among people who know him, I think he has a very strong reputation still within the field. And do you think all these people you've mentioned, you know, pe people like uh, Tim Powers, um, Gene Wolfe, um, to what extent are they heard of and read in, in the mainstream? I mean, would they be respected by... Um, you know, people, you know, outside of the SFS community, or do, do they really very much need to stay within the the walls of the genre for their readership? Uh, I mean, I think that they could achieve crossover uh, popular. I mean, not, uh, neither are our bestsellers, to my to my knowledge. Um, but I think that they certainly could be. They, I, I think that um, a, a significant proportion of literary writers, if they actually read them, would admire them quite a bit. 
uh, I think there's 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 some percentage of the literary audience that is just going to be turned off by the level of fantastical stuff in their stories. Um, you know, it's sort of like um, I don't know. There's sort of like a threshold of fantastical element that you can have uh, for a lot of literary readers, where if it's a fairy tale or if it's surreal or you know, if 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 it can somehow be categorized as magical realism, they can kind of uh, get on board with it. But if there's, you know, if if it goes from sort of like five to a seven on a scale of how much fantasy is in this story, that that's kind of tips a balance. For, that's a, there's mm-hmm. a tipping point for them, and they just can't uh, can't cope with that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But I I think that a lot of I th- I think Gene Wolfe and Tim Powers are both massively underappreciated in the literary world, and uh, many many more people. Then currently read them should and and would enjoy them. Neil Stevenson, what do you? How is he regarded? Uh, I mean, he's yeah, he's very highly regarded. I mean, his novel Snow Crash is a, a a classic work of science fiction. He's also achieved a lot of crossover success, mm. and um, some of his more recent novels. This happened with William Gibson too. A lot of the cyberpunk oriented writers have moved uh, more toward mainstream fiction. Um, so. Um, you know Neil Stevenson, or he also moved a little bit more into historical fiction as well. But uh, he's had recent books which are really more sort of techno thrillers than uh, out and out science fiction novels. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, but but all these people. I mean, it's once. I mean, like I said about geeks, geeks tend to love things and not ever fall out of love with them. And right. so mm-hmm. once once you've been loved uh, in the fantasy and science fiction world, you really have to do something pretty uh you know alienating to to lose okay. that affection mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are there any kind of uh, big disputes going on within the sff world that you can identify is there a schism or are there is there some sort of internal debate going on that you think is a particularly significant one or do most people tend to think the same things uh, no, there's there are a lot of massive debates uh, and a lot of very very uh, acrimonious ones. I mean, the the big one right now is there's a a big schism between the old guard who tends to be older and whiter and more conservative versus the younger generation, which tends to be much more uh, multicultural and much more uh, uh, accepting of uh, sexual identity and sexual orientations. And uh, and there's there's quite a big um, sort of uh, point of tension between those two camps right now. So that's simply to do with the politics, or the the, so, the, the kind of the. It's to do with actually things like um, celebrating gay people on the one hand and other people not liking that. It's stuff like that rather than a literary kind of uh, difference, is it? Oh yeah, well, I mean, but that that comes through in the fiction as well, in terms of who gets represented in the fiction. Um, but if, if you're tra- talking in terms of aesthetic uh, uh, battles, uh, I mean, the big aesthetic battle within fantasy and science fiction is the battle essentially between hard science fiction versus soft science fiction and/or fantasy. So there's hard a, times fiction. Yeah, so th- so hard science fiction it would be science fiction that uh, adheres most rigorously to the rules of science as we know them. Uh, okay. so, and, and people who write it tend to have backgrounds in physics and astronomy and mm-hmm. chemistry and so on. And mm. uh, they often regard themselves as superior to people who write uh, less scientifically rigorous kinds I of fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. 
And final question, what, what exactly is the demographic? I mean, I assume it's pretty young, or the people who read, people like Gene Wolfe, Tim Powers, and so on. Are these people you're talking about. Are we talking about it? Uh, these are mainly read by what, what, what kind of demographic would you say? I, I would actually, I mean, there, there's actually a lot of discussion within the field about the graying, what's called the graying of fandom uh, and the aging of, of people. Um, so a lot of the authors I'd mentioned, I'd, I would actually say it tend to have a bit older readership. Um, kind of what happened is that science fiction was very, very, had a big boom in the 50s with authors like Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein that pretty much everyone today has heard of. Yeah. And a lot of the people who still read science fiction were, are people who were drawn uh, to those authors initially. Mm-hmm. And since then, there were so many more people writing science fiction that it's been much more difficult for any individual author to achieve the kind of following that those authors had. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, so the, the audience has attenuated somewhat over the years. And then you had the YA boom with Harry Potter, where that brought mm-hmm. in a whole new generation of people as fantasy readers. But in a sense, they've kind of been, to a substantial extent, at least so far, they've kind of been locked into this garden of of the YA section of the bookstore and um, have not, at least so far, uh, moved in massive numbers to reading uh, adult fantasy written by authors of a generation or two before them. So are we mistaken in thinking that the contemporary fantasy audience is, is predominantly young? Yeah, I, I I don't think that that's the case at all. Uh huh. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, that that's really interesting. Now, that's very useful for me to to get a lot of that, and uh, I, I'll follow up a lot of these, um, particularly uh, Tim Powers and Gene Wolfe. Is it all right if I use this on the show? This this uh, conversation we've been having. Uh, sure. Yeah, but I mean, uh, it. it yeah, if you don't mind me being the interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 this, this is great. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, no, I mean, by, by all means, yeah. I mean, I, I could become a radio host uh, <laughs> <laughs> or something, or audio host, or whatever you call yeah. put it on podcast. Um, uh, yeah, okay, that, that, that's been very enlightening because a lot of the people I, I meet, you know, crossing the states like this, uh, they don't know much about this stuff. You know, I, I've asked, but, you know, a lot of the traditional booksellers or, or people like that, you know, they, uh, they're interested to know. They're, they're not being snooty about it, but they just don't know very much about it. So um, uh, this has been very interesting. Well, they should all listen to my podcast, and then they'll they'll learn all sorts of interesting. Ah, well, maybe this is this is the other question. Which are the websites you think the key websites to follow uh, this kind of stuff? I know that there's this thing called is it is it, is it io9? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that's that's one of the big ones, and the other one I would. Uh, point you to is called locusmag.com. It's the website for Locus Magazine, which is the trade publication for the science fiction field. Okay, locusmag.com. But that's more science fiction rather than fantasy, is it? Uh, no, they have both, really. Okay. Okay. All right. That, that, that's interesting. Mm. Okay, well, thank you very much. Oh, yeah, thank you. No, this has been really, really fun. Mm-hmm. Mm. Good. Okay. All right, so uh, yeah, I better start getting ready now. But uh, okay, so thank you very much, David, and uh, uh, good luck with it all. <laughs> all right, thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Right. Take care now. Yeah. You too. Yeah. Bye now. Bye. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Kashiro Ishiguro for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who signed up this week to support us on Patreon, including Timothy Payne, Mike Harrington. Lance W. Roberts, Diana Malkova, and Marco Manevsky. 
That brings our total up to $207.39 per episode. And remember that if we reach $250 per episode, that'll guarantee that the show continues through the end of 2015. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or a fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a very special thank you to our number one crowdfunder, Bruno Ancure from Paris, France, whose lifetime contribution just hit $600. So huge thanks again to Bruno Ancure and to everyone else who's helping to support Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.